for one of the most beautiful and playable custom acoustics on the planet, look no further than Ed Rice at Toeir Guitars. Ed is a true artist, transforming exotic woods into magnificent, sweet-sounding instruments. Go to toeirguitars.us, that's T-O-I-R-G-U-I-T-A-R-S.us, and contact Ed today. Hey everybody, Brad and I want to say thank you for listening and thank you for the support. Please continue to listen and share this podcast on all platforms that you can. And if you'd like to support us monthly, we're set up now where you can go to anchor.fm slash Top Hill Recording. Hit the support button, 99 cents, $4.99 or $9.99 per month. Any amount would be greatly appreciated. Now back to the podcast. podcast episode 54 what's going on neil what's up man how are you today i'm good happy snow day yeah so we didn't get 10 inches but we got a we got a bit got enough so what are we drinking today we are having some evan williams single barrel vintage always like you said on the way up it's always good man yeah single single barrel evan williams is good you know especially on a nine-year-old bourbon you can always get and it's on a snowy day one o'clock <laughs> Like bourbon drinking. Why not? Ah, you need more than that, don't you? No. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's one o'clock. You're right. <laughs> so we got another great guest today. We have Little Villian Brett Ralph, owner of Surface Noise. Thanks for joining us, Brett. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad we could have you on. Cheers, Neil. Cheers, Cheers Brett. Brett. Cheers, Cheers, guys. Brad. And I'm looking forward to this uh this podcast, Brett. You've got quite a quite an interesting past and a lot of uh, a lot of things going on in your in your life so it's going to be fun to to talk about but why don't we start with well i was going to say uh there's not been such a daunting task as to do research on brett ralph <laughs> i started Uh-oh. man i started digging in i was like this is just too much i don't know let's just talk Ta- takes you off in too many directions. So it? many directions. <laughs> I feel your pain. I'm I'm toying with the idea of writing a memoir, and the the question isn't where do I start; it's where do I stop. You know, like it's <laughs> there's so much. I mean, I guess I have lived a pretty colorful life, but yeah. in part, it's been intentional. You know, I've always been hungry for new experiences and different people and freaky scenes to get into and. You know, that's just life, man. That's how I like to do it. I, I have a feeling uh, the the life story of, of Brett Ralph would be like the unabridged version of The Stand, like 1,300 pages. <laughs> Hopefully not as scary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least we know where to start because we always start the same place. So, Brett, why don't you take us back to childhood and your first memories of music? And, you know, we'll go from there. But your first memories of music and how music got to be an important part of your life. Sure. Um, We moved to Louisville when I was seven. I was born in Moline, Illinois. And my earliest musical memory takes place in Moline. I remember uh, I was walking down the street. So I, I was probably five six years old, something like that. 
might've been seven. Uh, I was walking down the street to go to my friend's house to play. And I heard a song coming out of somebody's kitchen window, I guess on their transistor, whatever radio they had in the kitchen. And I was just mesmerized. And I remember standing there on the sidewalk till the song was finished. I later found out it was Little Willie by Sweet. (laughs) And uh, I remember just standing there. It's almost like I could see myself from above standing there with my mouth open, just dumbfounded by this song. (laughs) And I got to my friend's house and I remember trying to tell them what I'd heard and how it had moved me. And they just looked at me like I was out of my mind, you know, they, (laughs) and then they took me downstairs where these college students who had lived in their house the summer before when their family, I don't know where they went. They left for like three months. Maybe their dad was transferred or was doing a gig somewhere, but these college students who had rented their house had left like 200 titty mags in the basement. (laughs) And so after I told him about that song, we went downstairs and started looking at those magazines all day. <laughs> so, I mean, that is so a transition. That's musical memory, which was immediately tied to sex. Yeah, that's a transitional day in your life, man. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And I still love Sweet. You know, Ballroom Blitz was one of the first 45s I ever bought. Okay. I think my first record... Uh, my grandma bought me a copy of the Bad Bad Leroy Brown 45 because I had seen, I'd seen Sonny and Cher do it on the Sonny and Cher show. Every week, they would cover a hit of the day and have like a gritty 70s cartoon, you know, backed by their version of it. And there was this really cool, funky cartoon for Bad Bad Leroy Brown that like depicted all the events of the song. And man, I just went crazy for that. <laughs> That was a start. For me, it was, I don't know, from the very beginning, it was about records. There's just something about records that I really fell in love with. Though I love live music, I love listening to the radio, I like playing music. I don't know, there's something about the the solitary nature of listening to a record if you're doing it by yourself. You know, maybe that was, I don't know, maybe it's the closest thing in music you get to like sitting alone with a book of poems reading it and just having that mind meld with the with the author mm-hmm. i just really love listening to, i mean every night now you know my job is kind of to listen to records a lot of them i have to audition to see you know what i can ask for them or if they play through all right and sometimes it's just a rare record i've never heard before and i want to educate myself so i can say something intelligent about it if asked before i sell it you know because mm-hmm. i might never see another copy but every night I'm listening to records, you know, and and it's just, it remains a joy to me. It's one of my favorite things to do. Would you consider yourself uh, a collector previous to being a store owner, a record store owner? Like, when did that, you always loved records, but did you start collecting immediately? Yeah, I mean, I, I've never thought of myself as a collector because I don't really give a shit what they're worth. And until I started selling records at the flea off market a few years before I opened surface noise, you know, I I was never planning to sell them. So to me, it was just, I want to hear all the good music and some of the music that's not good too. You know, I just, (laughs) I, I just, I don't know. I just love music and it fills me with joy. And so, yeah, I've always had a sizable collection. I mean, when I moved back to Louisville and opened surface noise, 
I guess I had about 10,000 albums. <laughs> I've cut it wow. down to about three since then, which is still a lot, but doesn't seem outrageous and allows me to not live like a hoarder. Did you move 10,000 albums? Oh, yeah. Yes, oh. I did. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> By myself. <laughs> that was pretty me, solitary. You know, that was pretty solitary, too, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Where's my I've friends? had back surgery, too. I mean, one of the reasons oh. I opened Surface Noise is I got tired of schlepping those records to the mm. flea off market every month and setting up and breaking them down, and that was just killing me. Oh, yeah. But like a fool, I was still, for reasons that remain unknown to me, was still transporting them in those wooden crates that hold 100 records. You know? <laughs> <laughs> why, why I couldn't have got some milk crates and busted those in half, I couldn't even tell you. But, uh, but yeah, I've, I've, I, I guess from the beginning, it's... I'll tell you what got me to be a collector was falling in love with albums. And, and that remains to this day. Like, we sell 45s at Surface Noise. We got a handful of tapes and CDs, but they're all by local artists. But most of what we sell are books and records and, and specifically LPs because I just really fell in love with the format. You know, an album, it's, it's kind of a cross between music and a book. You know, you mm -hmm. can, if it's got a gatefold, you can open it. You can read the lyrics. There's art involved. There's a whole world there, you know, you can get lost in. And, uh, and, and I love doing that from the get go. And I've said many times, you know, say what you will about CDs and, uh, you know, comparing the fidelity of albums to compact discs, but I've never found naked Polaroids, bad poetry or marijuana <laughs> seeds in a jewel case. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you might find anything in an album. You know, they were good places to hide shit back in the day because they were, yeah. you know, on a shelf. And if you stuck some money in an album, wasn't nobody going to go through every album you own looking for money, you know? No doubt. So I guess those are things that you've found in uh, some of these albums, huh? For sure. For sure. <laughs> lots anything? of art too, you know, lots uh -huh. of like, stone six period study hall doodling you know on the inner oh, yeah. sleeves i'll bet you found some <laughs> gems in there with that stuff for sure for sure oh man <laughs> i i don't own this but uh a woman i used to date had a record her best friend gave her and in it this guy that this woman had scarcely even dated they've gone they've gone out once or twice Gave her a copy of Towns Van Zant. Uh, is it called Live at the Old Quarterhouse? I want to say it's mm -hmm. that double live album that is maybe his definitive recording. Mm -hmm. And this dude, like early on in the game, maybe these people had dated twice, wrote on the inner sleeves of both albums this insane love letter that covered both sleeves front and back. Wow. When he gave her this record. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I've Professor. never found anything like that myself, but I've, <laughs> I've only insane. found naked Polaroids once. <laughs> and the irony of this is that uh, I was in love with somebody in California and she came to visit me and she had sent me some naked Polaroids in the... <laughs> you know, ups and downs of our relationship, homemade <laughs> ones where she like printed out the pictures and cut them out and then pasted little black squares on the back. So they looked like Polaroids. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and the first time she came to to visit me in Kentucky, 
uh, I picked her up in Nashville and we stopped at this uh, record store in Nashville on the way back from the airport. And I bought an album I've been looking for for years, a Bobby Charles album. And as soon as we got home and started listening to records, we found two naked Polaroids in that Bobby Charles album together. <laughs> like clearly from the eighties, you know, clearly <laughs> massive eighties Bush and like <laughs> the skinniest woman who looked the most bummed out to be photographed naked ever. <laughs> oh man. What a jewel to finally find that record. Huh? Yeah. And to, to find it with her, you know, when with our history was, magical and i don't know there's something about records i think i mean obviously we're sentimentally and emotionally attached to music but and i figured out this the hard way when i opened surface noise you know i, I taught for almost 30 years and teaching is a pretty emotionally and psychologically taxing vocation especially if if you're a cool teacher and you're accessible to your students. And I taught at a small community college in Western Kentucky. And, you know, I got to know my students really well. And as a result, got to know the ups and downs of their lives a lot more than maybe I would have even cared to. And the older I got, the harder that was. It's just, you have so many students and there's so much going on with all of them. And it's just a lot to chew on, you know? And I mm -hmm. thought, man, this is going to be great. I'm just going to sell people books and records and sit there and bullshit with people all day and pet my dog and, you know, <laughs> go home and it'll be easy. But what I found out is when, you know, to, to own a record store, you got to buy a lot of records. And when you buy someone's record collection, something heavy went down. Like mm -hmm. people don't sell a lifetime's accumulation of music unless somebody dies, somebody gets divorced, hmm. or somebody's yeah. super fucking desperate, you know, yeah. financially, drugs, whatever it is, they're on the edge, you know? Yeah. And man, the stories and the interactions and the encounters that have accompanied me just keeping my, my shelves stocked has been a, 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 a story in itself too. And I mean, I'll say this. I'm not complaining. I think I'm up to the task. You know, I think I've got a compassionate heart and I genuinely care about people. And I'm fascinated with the way we funnel our lives into the music we listen to and vice versa. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I didn't see that coming. You know, I didn't know how, how, how much it would take for me to do that part of the job. Man, how, how could you see that one coming? I, I would have never consider that angle ever before yeah. but you probably end up sometimes being somewhat of a therapist i mean because you know how it is man you've just talked about records and, and and music in general for uh and the impact it has so those people that are in the midst of something like that have are, are, are selling part of their soul oh for sure for and sure and it's the things you mentioned that make you capable of doing that being compassionate and mm -hmm. caring for people and things like that are the same things that make that taxing yeah and, yeah and you're right yeah, you're right. Yeah, I've had old women like talking shit about their kids. Like, well, my husband died. They they lured me all the way back here to Kentucky. I didn't want to come, but they made it sound so nice. And I don't even see them anymore. They brought me all the way back here and they don't even call me. And mm -hmm. I tried to say something like, well, you know, they got families of their own and it's busy. And, you know, it's it'll probably take a transition to, you know, to get it back. And 
She's like, don't defend them. You ain't met my kids. I knew they were pieces <laughs> of shit when they were young. <laughs> that was an easy, that was an easy transaction. Like, all right, like, give me the records. Fair enough, man. <laughs> she had some fucking beautiful George Jones records, so I'll give her that. <laughs> Christine, huh? So when did you open Surface Noise? The fall of 2016, actually one week after the election. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's weird. Like I was, I was so busy getting the store open that I kind of missed the 2016 election. I just, I, you know, I had my own troubles and I was still, I hadn't retired from teaching yet. So I was commuting Mm. three hours from Western Kentucky every week (laughs) and running a store half the time here and teaching full time back in Hoptown. (laughs) <laughs> so, and I did that till the end of 2018. So. Oh, geez. oh, wow. What, what did you teach? Uh, English, creative writing, literature, and freshman comp. Mm-hmm. So did your, did your love of literature start about the same time as, as music or how did that come around? Yeah, I think I was always into books and music. You know, my mom was reading to me, you know, before I could read or talk or understand. And she, she takes credit kind of for my, my facility with language and the fact that I'm a writer and was an English teacher. Uh, And I, you know, I got a lot of books too. We sell books at Surface Noise as well. And I'm as fond of books as objects as I am of records for sure. So uh, yeah, I guess they, they kind of went hand in hand, you know? Yeah. I was thinking when you were talking about albums, you know, being a a mix of music, books and art at your store, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have an art gallery, too, which I kind of didn't see coming, you know. Uh, Hmm. It's weird. I lived out in the country for so long. You know, my ex-wife's a painter, and a lot of my friends are visual artists. And I guess I've always had original art on my walls, but I didn't think of that as remarkable or anything because my friends are artists, and all my Hmm. friends have art on their walls, you know. But people Hmm. would often comment on that when they'd visit me, but I live so far out in the country down in Christian County, I didn't get a whole lot of visitors. And it really wasn't until I opened Surface Noise and decorated it with a lot of stuff from my own collection. And people would just go crazy for how the place looked. And people tried to buy the shit off my walls like on a daily basis. <laughs> and I didn't want to sell it. So I thought, well, maybe I should be selling art. I know a lot of artists. And we had two back rooms there. One was kind of a stock room. The other one wasn't really being used for anything. So I decided to to renovate it and convert it into a small little self-contained gallery space. And oh, man. That opened in the June of 2018. We just celebrated. We reopened after the COVID shutdown in June. I probably would have waited till the fall. But one of my favorite local artists, Letitia Quisenberry, was scheduled to have a solo show to celebrate our second anniversary in June, uh, the second anniversary of the, of the gallery in June, 2020. So, uh, we reopened then just celebrated two years. We were having a, a show every month, but that's gotten to be a bit much. And now we're, uh, we're going to have, I think seven shows in 2021. Oh, phenomenal. And probably eight a year after that. I could fit eight in and let the shows be like five weeks apiece. Mm-hmm. But we shut down for two weeks in January to renovate 
the front two rooms of the store and re-carpet, repaint, redo the lights. We got a new record rack built to kind of expand our stock. And uh, that kind of cost me another show this year too. So we're, mm-hmm. we'll just do seven this year, but eight going forward. And uh, the artists that are going to be in the the seven this year, are they, lo- are they local artists? Are they from around the country? I think they're all local. I did have a, a Nashville artist scheduled to show, but she just got representation from a major gallery in Nashville. And part of the stipulation is that she doesn't show anywhere within a 300-mile radius. So oh. that fell through. She's a dear friend, too. It's kind of a bummer just because I love her work and wanted to show it. But I kind of see myself as serving this community. And, you know, so I'm much more interested in promoting local artists. Uh, We may do shows with people from out of town and I've had out of town artists in group shows that I've done, but it would probably need to be someone I know and am invested in for me to want to, you know, bump someone local to show Mm -hmm. someone from outside of Louisville. Oh yeah. And I think a lot of our patrons are, they're into supporting local artists. You know, it's, it's kind of a punk rock record store and that's kind of the DIY, you know, keep the money in the family mindset. So it's not that I'm averse to showing people from elsewhere. It's kind of that my mission is to serve Louisville and you know, that's who keeps me in business more often than not. Oh yeah. Plus the, the talent, um, the one thing that we we've discovered, you know, just doing this podcast is that there's so much talent in this city Um, in, in every aspect of, of the art scene. I feel like the visual art and the literary scene, I mean, I'm going to say has caught up with the music scene. And I Mm -hmm. don't mean that there hasn't always been amazing talent across the board, but Louisville's always kind of been known for its underground music scene outside of Kentucky. And I feel like our visual artists and our writers are starting to get the kind of recognition and notoriety that our musicians get. And I think that's very deserving. And I'm thrilled to be a part of making that happen if I can. Oh, yeah. So speaking of underground Louisville music scene, let's back up a little bit and talk about when you first started. Did you start playing an instrument, start writing songs? What originally got you into performing? I guess I had always dabbled with poetry a little bit, but when I really got started getting into punk rock, I guess when I was about 12, 13, Maybe I started, uh, I'm not sure if I was yet fantasizing about being in a band, but I started writing, you know, lyrics to songs that had no music. I didn't, I had taken guitar lessons when I was real young, but when I started playing football, when we moved to Kentucky, my dad decided either I didn't have time for both or we couldn't afford both. And it was obvious which side he was falling on. And so football took over and you know, I, I stopped taking lessons. I'm still a, a passable guitarist at best. Like to <laughs> me, it's a, it's a compositional tool, you know, mm-hmm. it's to help me write songs. I'm never going to blow anybody's away with my playing. Well, if, if you don't mind me asking, what were you uh, listening to at 12 and 13 in the punk rock scene that got you? Devo was in? my gateway drug. I heard Devo, Devo on Dr. Demento and that was kind of, but I was always, you know, My dad's really into country music. My mom really likes Motown and kind of whatever's on the radio. I was into harder rock, but I always liked AM radio too. And I love a good pop song and a good hook, you know. Uh, 
And I mean, I like Billie Eilish, you know, I think she's a whole yeah. new kind of pop music. I'm always oh, yeah. looking for new sounds, you know, and pop and punk rock are youth cultures, you know, and it's exciting to see, always to see what young people are doing and where, where the culture is going to go next. And mm -hmm. uh, if you're going to stay fresh and relevant, you know, you got to hop on young people's backs, you know, it's, oh, there's yeah. nothing worse than, you know, the cranky old guy telling the young whippersnappers how it used to be, you know, and, <laughs> and it surprises the hell out of me to see so many punk rockers succumbing to that. Oh yeah. God, we couldn't stand those old fucking hippies who were always condescending to us mm. when we were teenagers, you know, thinking our revolution had to fail just cause theirs did, you know? Yeah. That's and, not uh, music type. Right. Attitude. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, that's often, you know, it's often racially and sexually charged too, you know? Yeah. I mean, the the whole anti-disco movement was an anti-black, anti-gay movement that people didn't want to see those influences, you know, animating young people in their area. Mm. I mean, some people might just hate the music, but I think there was a <laughs> lot more to it than that, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just like with rock and roll and jazz, we're seeing, you know, as forces that were going to, you know, corrupt young white folks. Mm. And that's why there was such a violent reaction against them. Man, people, uh, if, if nothing, people realize how important music is. So, I mean, I think they, uh, in some aspect, were scared of it, you know, scared of the, the next thing and the next step and the new evolution of what is the next sound. And I think part of that is just fear of knowing how powerful music really is. Oh, sure. Art, you know, any kind of art, like yeah. even people who disdain it sense its power, even people who hate poetry resent it because they realize how intensely people respond to it. That's why I never got into the poetry slam thing. You know, I'm a pretty dramatic performer, but I never wanted to compete on stage against other poets. Like, yeah. I feel like art is meant to break boundaries down between people, you know, not to put them in competition against one another. Yeah. And I never got down with that, that notion. I mean, I'm competitive, but I'm competitive with myself. I mean, mm. don't get me wrong. Like I tried to blow every band off the stage that I ever opened for, but that was more to elevate my own performance than mm. to like fuck them up. You know what I'm yeah. saying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I do, I do think people sense that, you know, and I think what people resent, it's kind of what we were saying. You know, they thought black music was going to corrupt white teens. Well, yeah, like the bigots recognize that art has the power to break down boundaries and to give the lie to the forces that pit us against one another and keep us apart. And they don't want to see that happen. You know, they have a vested interest in keeping us pitted against one another. Oh, yeah. Hmm, yeah. So being in the Louisville punk scene, do you feel like Louisville was at, at the front edge of punk music? I do. I mean, we weren't there at the very beginning, but we had bands by 1978. And I think Louisville has had as, as fresh and as innovative a punk rock scene as any other uh, scene in the country. And considering our size, and relative isolation from the other big scenes in the country, I think it's even more remarkable. Mm -hmm. Though I think that's probably 
part of the reason why is we, we were, we've kind of been left alone to do our own thing. Mm. You know, the Babylon dance band was on the cover of the village voice in 1980 and Louisville was going to be the next Athens, but it didn't really happen. Then we were going to be the next Seattle, you know, in the nineties. And it kind of happened a little bit in the nineties with Freakwater and the palace brothers and slint and Rodan. I think, I mean, people were hip to squirrel bait in the eighties, but kind of on a cult level. But I think by the nineties and especially with slint and, and Bonnie Prince, Billy, like Louisville was, was firmly on the map by that point, but we still haven't really blown up. It still feels, you know, quaint and manageable here. And it's, I don't know. It almost seems, um, protected still, you know, there's, there's a part of it that, that, uh, not protected, but maybe pure. There's a purity to it because it's not had that commercialization. I, I maybe yeah, that's, there's no one to sell out to. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and part true. of that's Kentucky, and just you know, it's not so much being suspicious of outsiders; it's being so self-sufficient and so satisfied with your own efforts that you just don't need other stuff. And I, you know, Louisville's weird in that. The reason a lot of people didn't know about Louisville is for years, when out-of-town bands would play here, nobody'd go. But when a, a local act would play with five local bands, everyone would go. So people outside of Louisville thought it was whack because nobody came to see them. But we knew different. We were just saving it for ourselves. And, uh, and I think there's still an element of that. But part of that, too, is... As a product of that scene, I would say, well, yeah, our bands are better. That's why. It's not that we hate on outsiders. It's like we're going to go see the best shows, and it just so happens we're the ones playing them. Mm. (laughs) And that is true. Like the array of bands. We sell a book at Surface Noise called White Glove Test, which is a, uh, a coffee table art book of punk rock flyers from shows from 78 through 94. and it'll blow your mind like just the sheer volume of bands, shows, venues, artistic styles on the flyers. I've never seen another document quite like it. Hmm. And it's weird. Louisville's always been a tough scene to pigeonhole because, you know, the bands we have are so eclectic and some are super arty and experimental and weird. Some are super heavy, you know, some are, Classic rock, just good old rock and roll, a lot of country artists. But so it's hard to pigeonhole the scene, even, and that's even among the underground. Mm-hmm. And when I read that book and looked through it, I thought, oh, that's it. In Louisville, we're in it for the art, just for pure, unfettered artistic expression, whatever it is, as freaky, as conventional, as cliched, or as strange as you want. You're free to do your thing here. And it's a small enough scene. And we're, you know, as Kentuckians, we're so fiercely loyal is, you know, your people are going to support it, whatever it is. And there is a freedom and a purity in that. Mm. And people get to take risks, you know, because it's weird too. Like we're in it for the art also because, you know, a band will practice for a year (laughs) and play one show and then break up and immediately become legendary. You know, and we'll be talking about it for the rest of our lives. You know? And I don't know. We're, part of it is I think our our obsession with our own history and our uh, our propensity to self-mythologize here too. Mm. 
which is a Southern thing, but it just seems to run especially strong here. Mm -hmm. I think because you've got a really arty intellectual city in the midst of a real, you know, gut bucket, mid-Southern state. And those, you know, our native influences versus our artistic aspirations just makes for a really fascinating tension. You yeah, know? I mean, it, Louisville itself is a push-pull within the, in, in the state of Kentucky, I think. Exactly probably what you're talking about with, with that. You know, there's a little bit of <laughs> angst mixed with that also homegrown Southern spirit. So, I mean, it... it it gives you a different perspective, I think, growing up in a in a city like Louisville inside a state like Kentucky. I'm so thankful that my parents moved here from Moline, Illinois, when I was seven. Like, I can't imagine how different I would be if if I hadn't had Louisville to shape me. You know, it's really remarkable. Black culture too. You know, I mean, there there's a black community in in the Quad Cities, but I had one African American student at my school in Illinois. And moving to Louisville at the height of busing and starting to play football and having so many black friends. And the Jackson 5 was my first favorite band. Like the first album I ever bought was the Jackson 5's greatest hits. And I was so into black music and just, you know, being from Illinois, I kind of fell in love with Southern culture and African-American culture simultaneously. And to me, they're kind of inextricably linked. And Mm -hmm. For obvious and not so obvious reasons, you know. Hmm. So I got to ask you, as a uh, music historian, are you familiar with the end tables? Sure. White yeah. Glove Test is actually named after one of their songs. Okay. No yeah. kidding. I've got that. I've got that album in the basement. Chili Rago, God rest his soul, uh, gave me his own end table shirt. It was the only one big enough to fit me. Like they were selling them, it <laughs> popped out. And he was wearing this giant yellow one and they had white ones. And I'm like, you know, where where are the triple XLs? (laughs) He's like, oh, you know, we don't have any more. And they only have one yellow one. And he literally gave me the shirt off his back because they didn't have one to fit me. But Chili and I went way back. He was actually the first person who ever told me I was sexy. The first time I played with Malignant Growth. And I hadn't met him yet. You know, I was 16 years old. And all my bandmates worshipped the end tables. And they told me about Chili. They were like, yeah, man, they're the best punk rock band in Louisville. And their lead singer is this like 6'3 gay dude with red hair who dresses like a woman a lot. Man, they're a fucking trip. You know? And I mean, I'm from Pleasure Ridge. You know, I, I I I don't think I'd ever... I don't think I'd ever met anyone gay till I joined Malignant Growth, now that I think about it. Yeah. And I'm really happy, too, you know, real lucky that, I mean, I ended up founding the Pride Alliance at Hopkinsville Community College, oh, which is one of the things that I'm most proud of in my tenure there. And because, oh, yeah. you know, gay folks have been on the front line of every cultural revolution I've cared about, you know, especially punk rock, you know, mm-hmm. in Louisville, certainly, but it seems like it played that way out everywhere. And I think the reason is because, you know, punks, you know, we were, we were ostracized because of aesthetic or artistic choices we made, you know, and it's easier to accept it that way. Gay folks didn't have that, you know, luxury. They were ostracized because of who and how they are. 
Mm. not because of anything they chose. And so I think that, you know, that makes for courageous individuals. And, you know, a lot of the people who fought in the trenches to make the world safe for freaks like me were gay folks. And I'll always be indebted to them and want to pay that back. Well, and, and punk rock, uh, I think, it is is that that thing of like, look, forge your identity. Who cares? And, and and that is why it was probably so okay and accepted, and probably one of the first communities to really accept uh, gay people in and 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 embrace them, and then just say, "Hey, man, be you." Who cares? I mean, I think punk the punk rock impulse and the non-binary impulse go hand in hand. It's yeah. all about radical self-definition, you know. And I'm super excited about the whole non-binary trans revolution because now we're going to find out how much all these motherfuckers crowing about freedom really believe in it. You know, do you mm. believe in freedom enough to allow every American to self-define on their terms? Because mm. that's what this is about. You know, the most, the most pure flowering of the so-called American impulse, you know, the pursuit of happiness, you know, how, how far are you going to let people pursue that? Or are you going to be one of the forces that holds people back and tries to make them be what they don't want to be? That's, that's why I'm super excited about it. Mm -hmm. And we founded the Pride Alliance at HCC kind of right when that was happening, seemed to be starting to happen, you know, anyway, on a major scale. And I'm super excited about it. That's awesome. And it's great, you know, surface noise, a lot of queer kids shop there. And, you know, we show a lot of artists from every part of the spectrum. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really happy to be a part of that. Phenomenal. We don't have, before we get too far from the end tables, you got to tell them. Yeah. So my wife's uncle, uh, Stephen Jan Humphrey, it was the drummer for the end sure. tables. So that's Steve Jan gave me my copy of the end tables EP <laughs> at Tuligan's <laughs> one night. Yeah, that's but, a, he, he also gave me mine. Really? Oh, yeah. I don't have a sleeve for it. He was out of those. And man, with the sleeve, they go for bank. Yeah. But, you know, I'm just happy to have the music. Oh, yeah. And I've yeah. got a copy, you know, Drag City, the same record label that put out White Glove Test, reissued the the End Tables uh, EP on LP with some live cuts and on CD as well uh, a few years ago. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we sell end table shirts at Surface Noise, too, that Joe Fry, the original bass player, made up. Really? Yep. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah, I, I never got to see him back in the day. You know, Chili and Albert are both dear friends, the, the, the second bass player, and Joe as well. And I know Steve Jan and Alex, too. But uh, I never got to see him. They reformed in... You know, they broke up right before I came on the scene. Uh, Chili was already playing with Skull of Glee by the time I joined Malignant Growth. But the end tables got back together, I want to say in like 84, and played a couple shows at Electric Ladyland. But I was playing college football. I think I had away games both weekends <sighs> they played and didn't get to see them. But I did get to see them when they played it cropped out. You know, I don't know when that was, five, seven, ten years ago. That's the only time. That's when Chili gave me the shirt. That's the only time I actually saw him play live. 
Yeah, I was wondering when you were talking about the yellow shirt earlier, I, I don't think you heard me, but I said, you know, Brett, that's probably sweat stains. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's bright yellow, man. It really is. <laughs> My favorite color, so. Not only did you have time to do all the art scene and, and music, and, and but you also jammed some college football in there somewhere? I only played one year, you know. I got a partial. It was kind of... I didn't really want to play college football. I mean, I loved playing football. It's the first thing I was ever good at. But, uh, you know, I knew I knew I wanted, I was going to major in literature or philosophy or journalism. I wanted to be some kind of writer. I wanted to travel. And it just didn't seem like football was my focus anymore. But mm. Being willing to play football allowed me to consider going to some really good liberal arts colleges that my parents probably wouldn't have been able to afford otherwise. So mm. I was willing to prostitute myself to subsidize my education. But <laughs> hey, you got to you know, do what it, you got to do. It really do, wasn't man. my bag at that point. Yeah, and I got hurt more in one year of college football than I had in twelve years of little league in high school. It's just mm. a whole other level. And also, it was the eighties. Everybody was doing steroids, which I don't know. For some reason, that's the one drug I wouldn't put in my body. But, uh, <laughs> but guys that I threw around like like rag dolls were showing up after the summer and just kicking my ass. And it's just, you know, that yeah, I I wasn't I wasn't down anymore. It was time to move on. So we got to take just a minute. You you got a longtime friend that's also a longtime friend of mine. So we got to shout out and say hey, to Jerry Wyman for, for hey Jerry. On. <laughs> thanks for hooking us up yeah and yeah. how do you know jerry so i started teaching at Dallas high school in 1991 and jerry taught there so i've known him since 91 wow. we've we stayed pretty close uh since that's then. awesome yeah did you grow up near Dallas? yeah i grew up in the uh fairdale area still in the fairdale area i grew up on pike's peak boulevard i would have gone to Dallas if i hadn't been in the advanced program i did go to trunnell for a year and a half before I got in the advanced program. And okay. So you went to Pleasure Ridge. I did. Yeah. All right. Charlie, cool. Charlie Miller made sure that every advanced program kid in Louisville went to Pleasure Ridge Park. <laughs> Man, I feel so lucky that almost everyone I know of any age hated high school. I loved it. And when I tell people this, they're like, oh, that's just because you played football and you were popular. No, it's not. All my friends who went to Pleasure Ridge then, black, white, stoners, punks, jocks, brains. Charlie was just a remarkable person who created a really warm, inclusive environment. And I feel so lucky mm -hmm. to have gone to a school that he was principal for because it's, I have super fond memories of high school and, and meeting so many people who just loathed high school since then makes me feel even luckier to have experienced that. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that fueled, you know, Jerry's, uh, you know, career as an administrator and an educator as well, because he, he was a remarkable cat. Yeah. He just recently retired. As did you, my friend. Yes, we both did. Brett, what are you, uh, are, so are you retired from teaching completely at this point? Yeah. So everybody's retired. <laughs> Congratulations, yeah, I had, uh, you guys. <laughs> I, I was becoming increasingly disillusioned with 21st century academia. Mm. What really ran me out the door was uh, when Bevan made that 9% cut to higher ed and 
how KCTCS and, and my college in particular chose to absorb those cuts really bummed me out. And, uh, but I don't want to put too fine a point on it. You do anything for almost 30 years and it's going to lose its luster. You know, I'm glad I taught and it was, it's a worthy vocation and, and I'd like to think I was pretty good at it, but, uh, but I'll also say this, like surface noise feels like a more complete expression of who I am than anything I've ever done, including my writing, my music, my teaching. It just, I don't know. It, it's similar to teaching in this. It's just really nice to create a space for people to come into and be blown away by music, art, literature, the communal vibe meeting other interesting people to talk with. Uh, I don't know. That just gives me a whole lot of joy. And I probably like that it's not as performative. As I get Mm -hmm. older, you know, teaching is psychically a whole lot of work to command a room full of people and Mm -hmm. try to inspire them and to manipulate them into doing what you want them to do without bumming them out or stepping on their toes. You know, there's, there's a lot of hoops to jump through psychically to do it well. Mm. I don't know. Surface noise just feels like people hanging out in my living room with me, listening to records <laughs> and looking at art and petting my dog. And, and I mean, I guess I'm an authority. People ask me about books and records and I'm happy to talk about them, but it, it's not my job. You know what I'm saying? We're just two people talking. Mm. And, uh, and nobody's going to get tested on it. So was that, was it a shock to you for that to transpire the way that it did to where you, you know, having. Yes and no, uh, not totally because in all honesty, I wasn't called to teach, you know, I've worked since I was 13, but I never particularly wanted to, you know, I just, I needed money to do the shit I did want to (laughs) do. And, uh, it's life. I mean, by the time I was a teenager, I knew that, you know, I was into reading books and going to shows and smoking pot and listening to records and chasing girls. And how am I going to be able to keep doing this for the rest of my life? And teaching seemed like a gig that might make that happen. You get your summers and Christmases off. If, if, you know, at the college level, you might work it out to where you only work two or three days a week on campus. And, uh, you know, I mean, somewhat selfishly, I was just looking for some kind of job that could sustain the lifestyle that I was already cultivating mm-hmm. and teaching seemed like one. At what point did you get into writing your own books? Uh, I mean, I went to graduates, I guess in college. I mean, I started writing poems in elementary school. I remember hmm. one day we were riding the bus, you know, because I lived by Iroquois Park, but went to Pleasure Ridge. Well, this was actually when I was going to Carrick. So this would have been fifth fifth grade, but it was still a long ass bus ride. (laughs) And uh, I remember one of my classmates saying, did you write your poem for today? And I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, we had to write a poem about some event in history for Miss Basham. I'm like, oh shit, I forgot all about it. (laughs) So in the back of the bus on the way to school that day, I wrote a poem in rhymed couplets that was like 30 pages long <laughs> that went from like Adam and Eve to Jimmy Carter, like all of human history. <laughs> and 
the teacher was so impressed that uh, she allowed me to recite my poem to the assembled fifth and sixth grade classes. They like opened the doors, the wall between the two classes. And I had a microphone and everything. I was doing sound effects and no, shit. No, you were done from that point on, man. You were a performer <laughs> yeah, and poet and from that, that was, second on. And and it's weird because I've never been someone who wrote for himself. Like, I'm not saying I don't write things that other people don't see or that I don't write things just to get them off my chest or for personal catharsis. But to me, from that moment on, making art was a performative endeavor. Like, I made art so that I could impact other people with it. Not out of vanity. Uh, and people think, you know, all artists are attention whores. And it's it's not that at all. Mm. Like, I don't care about the attention. I care about the sacred transaction of getting to impact other people emotionally with something I've created because that's been enriching my life for as long as I can remember. And so to me, being an artist is being part of that sacred trust, like getting to be able to do that. Have you ever had the opportunity to tell Ms. Basham the positive impact that had on you? I don't know if she's no longer living. You know, I went back to see Mr. Doyle, who was the sixth grade teacher, and a lot of my teachers know, but I don't know if I ever got to tell Ms. Basham that. I'm sorry to say. Yeah. It was, you should tell your friend on the bus that made you do it real quick, because I think that's the guy that <laughs> saved you. <laughs> i got to track Paula Melton down. <laughs> you scared me into she being and I a and Jimmy artist. Walker used to sing Crocodile Rock on the way to school every day. <laughs> Jimmy would play the drums on his briefcase. Paula would sing, and I would do the wax paper uh, comb kazoo <laughs> for the Farfisa organ. So, Brett, how about... Uh... How about reciting one of your poems for us? Oh, yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. Let me put my reading glasses on and find one in here. Set us something up. Give us, give us the setup for this thing and why, it, uh, if you know uh, a story why it came out. Well, actually, I think I'm going to read. It's kind of long, but That's okay. this is about growing up in the South End, and this kind of partially takes place at Hot Rod Haven. Okay. Okay. Y'all know Hot Rod Haven? Heck yeah, yeah. man. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I take my dog to St. Andrew's Cemetery there at the top of Hot Rod Haven almost every day. She's really? almost 16 and kind of crippled up and can't walk real good. So it's hard to take her anywhere on a leash. So we go there almost every day and just I let her roam around and take a lot of pictures. I mean, that's been a special place to me since I was a kid. Okay. And, uh, but yeah, this, this poem kind of takes place in part at Hot Rod Haven. Awesome. Okay. Here you go. It's called Reindeer Games. The guy with the glass eye drives. The only one old enough. It will be him who's blamed if things go bad. Him they'll send to jail. They stick to back roads, eyes peeled for pigs. If you come after midnight, the story goes, to the graveyard at Hot Rod Haven, her right hand's ice to the touch, and the other will singe your fingers. What time is it, Chicken Man wants to know. Holding his wrist up to the moon, Tucker says, I've got good news, boys. It just so happens it's after midnight. It was always after midnight. 
Junior's laughing, his body hung from the shotgun side, obliterating mailboxes with a bat. Tucker wants to see this and turns, taking his eye off the road. The two sides of his face aren't the same, Junior thinks. One knows what is happening, and one never will. Tucker looks back to the highway just in time, not to sideswipe a station wagon. There's laughter all around. As they wait at the White Castle drive through Ricky and Chicken Man decide to catch a ride with a couple of girls. Junior can't go home. He tries to talk Tucker into riding out to the radio tower, pulls a pen from his jacket pocket, disassembles it. I've been saving this all night for you. He nudges the lighter with his knee. There's no other way to tell it. Tucker fell. The worst part by far was having to climb all the way back down. Junior had a lot to think about, one rung at a time. Some things made him sorry, others made him sick. He wondered if falling wasn't half as scary for Tucker as anyone else. Then he started laughing, so hard he had to stop and hook both elbows around the ladder. From the dewy grass, he watched the tower jut into the dawn. He shut his eyes and blew out his breath. Before the darkness behind his lids could erase the blinking beacon, he remembered what Tucker told him. He was playing chicken with his cousin, and he lost a dart in the sun. Oh man, he whispered. Oh shit, oh God. Tucker resembled a car wreck. Not the victim, but the wreck itself. Something had happened to his lower half, but his arms were still intact, thrown wildly as if he died cheering, spelling out a letter. He lay face down, thank God. Fumbling blindly, Junior fished the keys from Tucker's pocket. Birds seemed to be everywhere. He wondered how long he'd been hearing them. Careful not to get caught on the barbed wire fence, Junior landed funny, hurt his foot. Then he kicked at the gravel, grimacing. He couldn't make up his mind to listen to the radio or not. Off and on, then off again, never hearing more than half a song, a horrible blast of static. His ankle throbbed like a bad idea. No one had bothered teaching Junior how to drive a stick. Every time he tried to stop, the damn thing just kept dying. It took forever getting hold of somebody. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> Longest poem in my book. I don't know if that was the right one to pick. But no, man, that was great. I mean, yeah, thanks. Yeah. It felt good coming out of my mouth. Oh, man, that was great. I was deep. Yeah, I was, I was I was picturing it in my head, man. I kept thinking of every little spot you're talking, even down to the White Castle. Oh, I knew yeah. which one you were talking. I, I'm I'm right there with you. Nice. Yep. That was awesome. Yep, great imagery. Great imagery. Thanks a lot. I can. It blows my mind to be able to put words together like that. Uh, you know, that that put a picture in your head. Well, it's weird. I'm adopted, and nobody really on either. Well, actually, one of my younger cousins is a visual artist now. Uh, but there, there wasn't, there weren't really any precedents. Not even musicians on either side of my family 
which seems like the form of art that's most accessible to more people. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like lots of people who aren't even into art can still pick a guitar, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I was trying to figure out where, where that all came from, you know, nature, nurture. And everybody on my father's side of the family are really good storytellers. You know, they don't mm-hmm. write them down, but they really know how to hold court and like make it sound dramatic, whatever they're talking about. And I definitely think that is probably where the impulse first came from, you know? Mm. I tell you, man, uh, the art of storytelling is one of my favorite, favorite things. I listen to uh, the Risk uh, Risk podcast and, and the Moth podcast constantly. And just hearing, hearing people curate a story and put, you know, it puts you right there. I, I, it's part of, you know, we, I, I joked on Stephen King's stand earlier, but the, the scene that he can paint to put you in those pictures, it, it just is, there's something transformative when you can put words out that put a picture in somebody else's head and put them in that story without having, you know, using that pure imagination. It's, it's, it blows my mind. Succinctly. Yeah. You know, not a not a lot of words you can paint a yes. picture with not without boring someone. Well, I yeah. think, you know, I'm I'm not the biggest film fan because I think it does too much for me, you know, most films anyway. You know, most mainstream films or even television, you know, they don't even trust us enough to know when to laugh. You know, they put a laugh track in there to tell you to laugh. Like and that just seems patronizing to me and what I love about the written word is you're complicit, like you s- described. You have to imagine it. Those are just fucking symbols on a page, you know? Mm. And, mm. you know, and and you have to create all the images with that raw material. That's why it's weird. Really violent films and TV can be a bit much for me. I'm squeamish a little bit, like... And, uh, and it just feels kind of terrorizing, like a rape scene. I can never fucking watch anything like that, Mm. but I can read anything almost because I'm the one imagining it. You know, nobody's putting that image in my mind. They're giving me the symbols to create it, but I'm the one creating it. And that's much more interesting to me and more complicated Mm. than, you know, Quentin Tarantino's violent fantasies, you know, recreated on screen and you just kind of have to sit and bear witness to them. You know, Mm. I'm not really involved in the construction of those images the way I am with something I read. Ironically, I really love a lot like Hubert Selby is one of my favorite novelists and he wrote Requiem for a Dream among other Mm. things. And his books are excruciatingly violent, but I don't know. It's a different experience reading about violence than watching it happen. You can put it in a context that's manageable, yeah. manageable to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in, I got to see exactly that. And I so. feel that. Yeah. I emphasize yeah. that a lot as a teacher when my students might, they didn't really complain, but when they would say, you know, like, especially in a fiction writing class, because, you know, when it comes to realistic fiction anyway, the problem of fiction is, you know, characters being challenged and overcoming adversity more often than not. And Mm. so bad stuff often needs to happen for them for that to happen. And people would say, why do so many bad things happen in the stories you assign us? And I 
one of my answers would be, well, you know, maybe in literature we'll allow ourselves to get closer to something troubling that we were going to encounter. And, you know, I hope we never encounter violence in our actual lives, but we're probably going to. And maybe literature can help prepare us for that by allowing us to get closer and examine it more closely and still feel safe and not implicated, you know? Mm. Mm. Well, Brett, man, we, uh, we, we were glad you joined us and we try to keep these right at about an hour and we're theirs. But for our listeners that would like to visit Surface Noise, can you tell us where Surface Noise is and, and what they will get there from yep. your store? We are at 600 Baxter Avenue. That's at the corner of Payne Street, uh, Phoenix Hill, about half a block from Spinelli's. We're open Thursday through Monday, 12 to 6. We're closed on Tuesday and Wednesday. We got books, we got records, we got an in-house art gallery. When it's safe to do so again, we'll have poetry readings and intimate musical performances and art openings. But for right now, we're not having any scheduled events at the store. Awesome. Well, man, I'm fairly certain we could have about 15 of these episodes with you. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think we could talk forever with you. <laughs> well, it was a pleasure talking with you guys. You make it real easy. We oh, did, man. We didn't even get into the Buddhism. I was wanting to have a conversation <laughs> about that, but we don't have time to do that right now. So we oh, have to man, we may have one. to do it again. <laughs> yeah, I'll come back and do it, man. I'd be happy to. It was a real pleasure. Heck yeah. Hey, what do you think about uh, taking us out with uh, one more wait, wait. poem? Got any good Tony Rice records down at the shop, man, that I can come grab? I don't have. You know, I got one in, and it went almost immediately, you know, with his passing. I know. But, yeah, I don't, I don't see too many Tony Rice records. Man, I'm deep in. I'd love to get me a, a, a Rice and Dog or a Tony and Dog record or something like that, man. There's so many good ones out now. Well, if you oh. follow us on Instagram, I post almost all of our new arrivals. We're surface underscore noise underscore KY. And that's the easiest way to see what we got going. Maybe because you mentioned Tony Rice, uh, I'll read a poem about music. This poem was actually inspired. I'm a huge fan of the Everly Brothers. Oh, right. And I heard a little bit, you know, their father, Ike Everly, was a great musician in his own right. There were, uh, in the great Western Kentucky thumb-picking tradition, there were three titans, Merle Travis, of course, who everybody knows about, Mose Rager, who never recorded, I don't believe, who was reputed to have been the best of them, and mm. Isaac Everly, who kind of sacrificed his own artistic ambitions to, you know, support his sons uh, in their musical endeavors. Though they did have a family radio show all over the Midwest and the South when they were growing up. But by the time I, uh, Don and Phil were teenagers, rock and roll was starting to happen, and it was clear that they might have a chance to make it in a way that, you know, Ike never would. Hmm. So this is kind of about all that. It's called In Open G. There is a hole in my lap the sound comes out of, but there is no sound now. So I turn it upside down and shake, hear the pick's hollow rattle hope for it to fall. I can't say if men still arm themselves with picks as they embark on their dark odyssey into the earth. But Egypt mines had an operation once when I first moved here, butted up against my land. On warm nights, windows open 
There was a constant, distant rumble, transparent voices that may or may not have bled into this world, huge lunar contraptions emitting the mom-back beep of a garbage truck, which by day of light resembled nothing so much as dinosaur remains. It's less than half an hour from my house to the place where Isaac Everly rose from a pit, rubbed grit from his eyes and vowed no son of his would break his neck, sucking blood from a stone or sing a lifelong lonesome song underneath a mountain in blackface. Ike would drop his pick and pluck his sons from fields of green infinity, the place they had ever prayed and laid down weary heads, tried not to hear coal trains as they hauled away the planet's very pulse, a life Ike's boys would never have to learn, though they'd spend the rest of their days on earth grown filthy rich from singing songs of longing to return. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so good. Thanks, man. That's one so of my favorites. amazing. Oh, that's Because it so ain't good. about me. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again, Brett. Man, thank you, Brett. My that pleasure, was a phenomenal guys. podcast. Pleasure buddy. to meet thank you both, you. man. Come see thank me at the store. I'd love to see your faces. <laughs>